0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into
1: the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, featuring somebody else who I actually deployed with. So yes, the second guest who I've deployed with is coming on the show. I don't think we'll hear any embarrassing stories. Calm yourself. But he has, certainly has a great personal story, and I'm glad to have known him uh, for all these years. So we'll get to him in just a moment. Just a few quick reminders. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground or at Hazard Ground Podcast. Catch us there on everything. Keep up with the show have others follow us as well. Help grow the Hazard Ground community. Don't forget to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, speaking of growing the Hazard Ground community, the more Apple reviews we get, the more Apple will push the show to the top 100 podcasts. And the more people that will see and hear these fantastic stories that we tell each and every week. So please leave us a review. It doesn't have to be a long review. Just something quick. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate all of the support. Speaking of watching the show uh, make sure you guys follow us on our youtube channel uh, on hazard ground at hazard ground on youtube as well download the Killcliff tv app because our friends our good friends and our sponsors at Killcliff, as i'm holding up their cbd clean energy drink killer cliff sickle uh guys uh, kill cliff just makes the best energy drinks on the market clean no natural no unnatural products go into it i use the pre-workout i use the post-workout uh, and they do cbd better than anybody out there if you're into cbd for your body for your joints and everything Killcliff is the way to go check them out Killcliff.com, but also all of our episodes you can watch on the killcliffe tv app so that knows oh don't forget about our promotion with amazon i always forget that one i don't know why but nonetheless go to our website com. click on the amazon button at the bottom of the home page one of the sponsors tab you can do all of your normal amazon shopping we'll get a percentage of what you spend and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities that you've heard featured here on the hazard ground. Works right from your smartphone as well. So if you go to your web browser on your smartphone, it'll redirect you to the Amazon app. So all your credit card information is saved. Super easy and an easy way to support and help out veterans all across America. Uh, And I do apologize. I got a little bit of a a sore throat thing going on here. I feel okay, just a little bit hoarse. So thank God I don't have to do that much talking with our next guest because after 21 years, he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army and a former Green Beret. Seven deployments in his entire career. Uh, Served in the 82nd Airborne Division, 10th Mountain Division, and 5th Special Forces Group also at West Point. Uh, After his military career, he opened up a brewery called Chattabrucci uh, in Columbus, Georgia, right near Fort Benning. And he has recently joined the National Infantry Museum Foundation as its Director of Communications. He's got an incredible personal story and certainly proud to call him a friend. Michael He joins us here on the hazard ground mike always great to talk to your brother you look fantastic and i love the backdrop
0: i appreciate it man the backdrop is my brewery you're going to see me smoking cigars throughout the podcast <laughs> and i'd just like to say it's been great i've been retired for several years i think you and i deployed together 16 years ago yes you and i became closer friends post-deployment than we were during the deployment you and i stayed in touch and uh thankful to call you a friend absolutely uh yeah 16 years ago man it, it seems that it's gone by
1: fast, but like in the same, you know, it's hard to believe that it's it's been been that long ago. Um, but you know, back yeah. to the beginning for you, uh, before we met, how did your military career start?
0: My father was in the army, and I came from a military background, and it was never a question for me personally whether or not I was going to go serve. I always knew that since I was a little kid. Uh, Dad showed me a great way of life, and I was used to that almost vagabond lifestyle. Every two to three years, we would move somewhere and I started looking forward to it. The PCS is those permanent chains of station. And I lived all over the United States, all over the world uh, as a child, let alone as a soldier myself. Then I graduated college. I went away to a civilian school and I really enjoyed the the opportunity to live in one place for four years at a time, but I, I got the itch and joined in 96. Um, I was enlisted. I was enlisted for a very short period of time, enlisted for long enough to say I was, and then I immediately went to officer candidate school from there straight to the 10th Mountain Division as a lieutenant ranger school. Then I went to selection and began my 16 years, 16 of my 21 years. I was a Green Beret uh, special operator in, in United States Army Special Operations Command. My my tombstone assignment, my pinnacle was I was the chief of operations for Army Special Operations. So I had a portfolio of about 35,000 people. And I would I would checkbook them into different missions, uh, different skill sets and permissions, monies, um, airframes, etc. that we would dole out to different numbered task forces or task forces out in, in the different geographic communities combatant commands. Yeah, that was a great way to give back to the community before I retired. It's awesome. Uh, I do want to explore more of that because it
1: seems uh, a lot more fun than than what you actually describe. But uh, let's go back <laughs> because, you know, you and I both signed up in a pre 9-11 world. I'm curious, um, in conversation with your old man, once 9-11 happened, was there a conversation about what combat was like? Did your, did your father end up actually seeing combat in his time in the military?
0: My father was interesting. He, no, Um, he'd be the first one to tell you that he personally did not see combat. Interestingly, he has two combat deployments um, where he was in an area of operations that was considered a combat zone during the Vietnam War. He personally defined it as, you know, did he personally look across the field and see an enemy? That didn't happen. Um, That's not to disparage any of his service. He was there the whole time. Um, that said, he obviously knew hundreds, if not thousands, of combat veterans personally from the Vietnam era. And, you know what, I'm going to time out on that real quick and say, you know, one of the lost generations of veterans that I don't think gets the, the credit it deserves, the Cold War generation. They stood the line, man. yeah, And they they stared down the bear for decades. And so just a shout out to the Cold Warriors out there they are often forgotten and neglected as a combat, um, Yeah, Germany, general. Germany
1: in the mid eighties was a tense place, man. It wasn't the, fold a, the gap. Yeah. Yep. It, it was, we actually had a guest on, uh, his name was Steve Cannon. He ended up becoming the CEO of Mercedes Benz and now runs, uh, the Atlanta Falcons business. But he told a lot of stories. He was there, uh, on Germany in the wall, you know, right at the wall yeah. during the eighties. And there was a lot of tension on a routine basis of somebody daring to fire a shot on the other side. It's almost like that yeah. whole, uh, from a few good men. You know, he talks about the mirror engaging, right? You know, staring right. at you. I eat breakfast 300 yards away from 4,000 Cubans that are trained to kill me. Yeah, that whole deal. Um, but it's that it's level I of have a
0: piece of the Berlin Wall. Do you really? I, I, I do. I have a huh. little small concrete chunk with some graffiti on it. And it was our battalion motor officer when I was a lieutenant in the 41st Engineer Battalion in uh, 10th Mountain Division and i'm a huge history buff and the guys i I was there and i was in the barracks i think he said it was the berlin brigade he was in the berlin brigade when the wall was falling and you know the air sirens and whatnot started going off hey guys we need to go out and stand too and he collected up pieces of the wall and I, i actually have one i have up maybe a five pound chunk of it that is probably the best pet rock you can have it's probably going to end up in the National Infantry Museum. There you go. Outstanding. Good yeah. stuff.
1: Um, but yeah. so back, back to your dad, sort of what conversations you guys having after post 9-11, right after?
0: He he didn't he didn't like the fact that his son was going off to war. Really? Uh, no, he did not. He was very proud, and I was a Green Beret. I I, I was not sitting on a fob. Um, which your audience knows what that is. I wasn't sitting on a fob eating KBR ice cream two, three meals a day. I mean, I was out hooking and jabbing. And uh, it was my tour with you, which is when I I remember distinctly, and we'll get into this later, leaving the wire for the first time and the the emotions and the feelings that I had. I swear (laughs) on my mother's eyes, the air smelled different as soon as I got on the other side of that wall. Yep. But he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. He did not want to see his son out there. And, and he knew very well and intimately exactly what his son did. Uh, he knew enough to know that Green Beret doesn't, doesn't sit back and read reports about what happens. Uh, they write the reports based upon what they personally did. And, you know, as you remember uh, from that tour in particular, I mean, I saw a lot of combat. I saw a lot of first hand combat. And uh, my, my dad was not a big fan of that. Uh, proud as can be. Um, but he got to a point where he was almost, don't even tell me you're leaving because it just stresses me and your mother out too much. Um, yeah. and that's part, that's part of the, the downside of having such a hyper-connected world today. Yeah. I
1: mean, my, uh, my stepfather was in Vietnam, uh, and did see combat, uh, when he was there. And I remember, you know, a couple of conversations I would have with him. I would never tell them when I was leaving or whatever. I would just tell them after the fact, some crazy stuff happened. You know, I, I wouldn't tell my mother. I would only tell my stepfather um, just because, you know, it's one of those things where I knew he kind of understood. I could just sort of gloss over some of the finer details uh, and, and be able to have him understand exactly what I was driving at. But um, it, it, it it becomes a different, you know, environment for you. Uh, and you start to view things very differently when, uh, after those first couple of experiences. And, uh, you know, I mean, It changes you without a doubt.
0: No, it it absolutely does. And you talk about, you know, discussing things, and this came up just the other day between Kathy and I. I remember Kathy, she's active duty too. Kathy's my wife. Uh, She's active duty, and she just got picked up for lieutenant colonel. She's not promoted yet. She's a JAG officer. Um, She went to law school in Nashville at Vanderbilt when I was in fifth group at Fort Campbell, and that's how we met. And anyway, long story short, I was recalling, the story of um, we were allowed one phone call, something bad happened, And instead of having all of, you know, the wives of husbands who were still alive, having them kind of worry, you know, what happened to my husband, I was allowed that one phone call. Um, I picked up the phone and said, Hey honey, I'm fine. I just want you to know that. Um, do me a favor and don't watch the news for the next couple of days. Oof. And, you know, so she was in a school at the time she was in her jag jag advanced course uh where she was getting her legal master's degree and so she was allowed i was in the special mission unit at the time and she was allowed to have her phone on specifically because of me and no shit i actually made that phone call of Hey, honey, I just want you to know I'm fine. Please don't watch the news for the next few days. Don't talk about it. Um, did she listen to funny.
1: your advice and not watch the news? Because as soon as you tell me not she, to watch
0: the news, I'm, I'm going to turn the She news did. On. Oh, she, she did. did? Okay. She, she's a really mature and intelligent person. And so she absolutely did. But, you know, the whole class, her phone starts ringing. She stands up and takes the phone and everybody's watching her. And she just walked back in and said, yep, he's okay. Wow. So, yeah, that's not a call you like making.
1: No, and again, I, I, you know, we live in this world, right, where people know who you are and social media and everybody knows I've I've deployed and everything else. You know, there's a lot of people who have said mean things to me online. That's fine. Like, I don't, the only thing that ever bothered me about anybody who questioned my service more than anything was anything that related to my family. Because the idea of my mother laying in bed every night, worrying that there was going to be a knock on the door or a phone call was going to ring still to this day, emotionally tears at me. Like I now, especially now that I'm a parent, right? Like I I understand it a lot more. Um, The idea that, that someone could take your child away from you is just, it's an overwhelming fear that is hard to deal with. And so from that standpoint, the only reason I ever get protective over my service is as it pertains to my family because of what they had to endure while I was gone.
0: Well, my wife deployed to Afghanistan. Oh, wow. So I, I felt it the yeah. exact 180 that the other side of it, where, when there was a phone call, it's, are you okay? And your heart just are skips a eat? beat. Like, you know, okay. yeah, man. Yeah. And, and that really taught me quite a bit. In fact, she's going to be deploying again. Uh, I don't know exactly when actually. So she, within the next year, uh, I know that she's heading over to the middle East. Um, and that's, That's going to be another, Yeah, it's going to be another 365 where I'm, I'm, it it was harder for me, realistically, it was harder for me being back home, wondering if she was okay and what was going on than it was for me. I I loved it, man. I mean, we were, we were blowing shit up and and breaking shit and it it was fun. Like, that's what we, that's what we signed up to do, man. We were, we were commandos repelling, you know, dropping bombs and and hooking and jabbing. That's what we signed up for. And that's what we trust me. Every single one of us wanted to be out doing. We enjoyed it. Uh, Now, now be a, now be a husband who's sitting back waiting to find out whether or not she's okay. That was tough. That was really tough. I want to, I don't want to fast forward too much, but just
1: in the time gap from nine 11 to itself, because uh, your first deployment was my first deployment in 2005, so what's going on in that time frame? Because you already had your tab, right? I mean, you were you were already a Green Beret no. at that point in time. Oh, no, okay. no, no,
0: no. I was in the Q course when. Oh, so I joined in 96. Right. I commissioned in 99, and I was lieutenant in 10th Mountain Division, and I was in the 41st Engineer Battalion, 10th Mountain Division at Fort Drum when the towers fell. Gotcha, and one of our platoons went, it wasn't mine. And, uh, God, I, back then didn't we all think, Hey, this is going to be six months. We're going to go get Osama bin Laden and the Taliban and then we'll all come back home. Um, I had my packet in already to go to special forces selection at that point. And I went to selection in Oh two. Okay. So the towers had fallen about a year later, I went to Selection. About a year and a half after that, I was Thank in fifth course. group. Okay. And 05 was my first tour with you. Um, why did you want to be a Green Beret?
1: I mean, you know, your dad, your dad wasn't one, was he? No. Okay.
0: Um, I wanted to be the, the old Army motto. I wanted to be everything I possibly could be. <laughs> everything I could possibly be. Yeah. If I was going to be a soldier, I was going to be the best damn soldier I could possibly. No, but,
1: okay. So, I, I mean, I... Uh, a hundred percent agree. Like part of my problem with active duty. And again, it was pre nine 11 was that I wasn't, I wasn't living the brochure. I wasn't being all I could be. I was going to work every day at Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas, which sucks. Okay. And and it just wasn't any fun. Like there was nothing going on. We didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. You know, it was so mundane. And I'm like, okay. um, Peacetime army is hard, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not all that. in a bag of chips, man. I mean, again, thankfully for, 20 of my 22 years that we've been at war. So I feel pretty good about it, but um, it's really boring. Garrison sucks. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's it, yeah. part of the reason why I wanted to get off active duty was because I'm like, this is just not, who wants to do this for 20 years? It's boring as hell.
0: You know, Well, that's kind of how I felt. I wanted to, I wanted to run obstacle courses and shoot things and, you know, jump out of airplanes. And I wanted to, as you put it, and I've never heard, heard it put better. I wanted to live the brochure. Yeah. And that, to me, was the way to live the brochure. You're on a small 12-man team. You get on a helicopter. um, Go anywhere in the world. The ramp drops, you get off. Mm -hmm. And my command, this no kidding happened. What do you want me to do, sir? He's like, I want you to conduct special operations in your vicinity. I'll see you in six months. That's living the brochure.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, pretty much. That's your left and right limits. Um, But, too, again, you know, I didn't know... So I'm somebody who has like next to no military background. Like my my like I told you, my stepfather was in was in Vietnam. My my grandfather was in World War II, but obviously it was never talked about. It's different. So I didn't know anything about Green Berets or Special Forces while I was on active duty. Because had I known about it, I would have probably wanted to go down that road. It seemed interesting enough to me. Fortunately, I got to kinda of got to live the life from an ancillary perspective, deploying with you guys. But um yeah, it's just it was one of those things in a pre nine eleven world nobody really knew about. Like you had to do active right. research. <laughs>
0: Right. Well and I, I don't mean this tongue in cheek. Rambo. Remember back in the eighties, yeah. the Rambo movies, that was kind of like my first introduction. I was to, more partial to
1: Rockies I, for Sylvester Stallone than Rambo. And I, didn't, just, you know. <laughs> I didn't know
0: anything about special forces other than there was that scene where the I think the cop was like, Oh great, we're chasing down a green beret. Mm-hmm. I hear they're real badasses. And I was like, Well, I kinda wanna kinda wanna check that out. Um yeah. loved it. It was everything I thought it could possibly be. And I think over the course of the war, special forces got better and better and better and more refined at their jobs. Um, so I'm really proud of the state of the regiment today. And God, I, I, I wish I could be back there. I wish I could turn the clock back 20 years with the technology the training and the uh, combat mindset that they have today—they're really something else.
1: They are. Um, is there is there too much pub for SF? I always ask the Green Berets this because movies, books—you know, fantasy world. Like you know, everybody wants to be a Green Beret now. It's just a cool thing to do. Well,
0: no, I, I I don't think there's too much. I mean, at the end of the day, there is an aspect of whether we like it or not. You know, these things really play a huge role yeah. in and who gets funding and who gets the talent. Um, You know, I jokingly say, and, you know, Dan Crenshaw was here once and I I said this to him and even he thought this was pretty funny. How how do you know when a Navy SEAL walks into a bar? How? Trust me, he'll tell you. Uh. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the Navy SEALs get, you know, they get all the press. Why? Because they want it. Understand the power. They want it. And they understand the power of the press. Um, I think special forces can do more in the public relations sphere, because at the end of the day, and this is one of the things I would say from on high, as loud as I possibly could, if you don't tell your story, somebody's going to tell it for you. And who do you think is going to be more accurate and flattering? So I do think special forces needs to tell their story. We have our very secretive special mission units out there, mm-hmm. um, and that's fine. And they should not have any press, and they don't. Um, so you've, you've heard of the Seals, uh, you've heard of the Rangers and you've heard of the Green Berets. Um, you know, let the guys who really need to be sneaky Pete, let them be sneaky Pete. Um, but the Green Berets, in my opinion, uh, they're doing a better job today than we did back in the day. Uh, there is such a thing as we are the quiet professionals. Yep. Granted, that's one of our mottos. Um, however, paint, it, paint it on the wall in our gym, on our, on our yeah. base. Yeah be, be the quiet professional. In other words, be a blue collar guy who rolls up your sleeve and does your job without any fanfare. However, comma as an organization. Um, I think we've come a long way as far as embracing, uh, social media and media as a whole. Um, it it's the way of the world today and it'll leave you behind if you don't embrace it. Right.
1: Okay. So, uh, you're in the Q course. When do you get the word that you're deploying and where, uh,
0: before you and I link up? uh soon as i graduated i graduated the q course in 04 and i got to the special forces group in 04 and as soon as i got there it was boom we're going to jrtc which your listeners should know jrtc rotations particularly during the combat environment that we found ourselves in in 04 that was a you know pre mission train up that was a pmt and so I knew as soon as I hit the ground in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, this Special Forces Group, I'm going to JRTC with my company. I'm going there for a reason, and that is to get ready to deploy. And uh, goodness, I think it was six months later, we were on a bird landing in Baghdad, which is when I met you. Yeah, um,
1: I had already been there for what, about two, three months by the time. 50, I was there for three different SF rotations uh, for the civilians listening. They don't do full year deployment, six, seven months. Maybe they're right. in and out um, because they have to do it so much. So I had already been there for 10th group uh, and then you guys had rolled in and uh, it was that you, 5th group had, uh, 2nd Battalion, 5th group had the longest stretch of my deployment there. So I spent the most time with you guys yep. than anybody else. Uh, and, and you talked about the mentality before and I, and I learned this very quickly early on. Just roll up your sleeves and go to work every day. Uh, and I talked to, you know, I, I've told this story before, but, you know, one of the things that that allowed me to fit in so well in the environment, not being a Green Beret, not being a Ranger or anything like that, was just the idea that I understood very simply um, that I needed to be a force multiplier. Like right? Like, I didn't want to be in the way. And I didn't want to not be able to do the job in front of me. And the only way I knew I was doing a good job is that everybody kept giving me more work. Right. Like that was because Green Berets simply will, if they ask you to do something, you don't get it right. They're not going to sit there and hold your hand and correct you. They're just going to find somebody else who can do it or do it on their own to get from point A to point B at the quickest time possible.
0: So, I mean, we're we're both, you know, we're both urban northeast New Yorker Bostonian type folks. Right. Yep. So uh, I live in the deep south now. (laughs) As and, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, right. It, it's we're, we're an hour down the road from each other, man. We got to hang out yeah, and smoke a to cigar. at some point. In time. Um, you know, back where we're from back home and it's the same way, I think in that subculture of uh, special operations, if, if I don't like you slash respect you, I just won't talk to you. Yep. And, and that's, that's, that is a crushing death inside a small organization when people don't even consider you worth having a conversation with. Um, I'd rather whip my fastest horse than to, than to continue trying to push a boulder uphill with you. Um, and that, that was the way we were. And you, you stood out as somebody who you put your head down you showed up early, you stayed late, you were in great shape. And as I recall, you were very blunt and in your face, which was something that we appreciated. Um, in, in the military, this is, this, is a, um, um, this is a tell about what we're going to have a conversation with when it comes to small business. But in the military, it's very much, I don't have time to sit here and pull teeth and get the information out of you. People are dying, bombs are dropping, and bullets are flying. Tell me what the answer is right now. If I ask you a yes or no question, give me a yes or no answer. And it doesn't mean I'm being rude, and it doesn't mean I don't like you. It means I need the damn answer right now. And you were that guy. You showed up early, stayed late, you were in shape, and you were blunt with the honesty. You were brutal with your honesty. Like, no, I don't have those. When are they going to be here? Six weeks. Okay, now I can move forward with that information. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, it's funny
1: that that same bluntness that I've carried forward to the latter half of my career tends to get me in a lot more trouble now than it does uh, aid me along the way. But again, I'm operating in a different environment. It's probably why uh, I haven't pinned on 06 yet, full disclosure. But that's a different discussion for a different time. Because uh, I've been waiting patiently for quite some time now. Uh, that said, it, it was it was that sort of level of um, professionalism that I appreciated about the environment, right? Like I, I could understand those limits very well and I can operate within them. And, and it's not only that. You gave me the autonomy to do things my way, right? Like you didn't – I didn't have to show my work. All I had to do was produce the results. And And what I learned from that deployment, and I say this routinely to everybody that I'm ever in charge of – I manage results. I don't manage activity. When I don't get the results I need, then I have to manage your activity. And that's when your world becomes complete shit. Right? Because I don't want to manage your activity. Right. I, I want right. to manage results. If you, As long as it's not illegal, immoral, unethical, and it doesn't put anybody in safety jeopardy, physical harm, then I can let you do whatever you want. Correct. Show up to work in a pink water. thong. I don't care. If you get me the right. results I need, I will give you the leeway to be
0: you. What did Dwayne Cox always used to say? I don't know I've been trying to get him on here
1: and he keeps ducking me.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he used to say, Hey, if it's stupid and it works, then it's not stupid. Mm-hmm. Dwayne Cox, for those who don't know, and
1: I'll always speak highly of him. He was the company sergeant major uh, and and a guy that um, was as abrasive as the day is long, but it was an endearing sort of abrasive abrasive, right? Like he was a guy that, Um, I absolutely could learn from, he had no, I mean, listen, I'm a, I'm a captain, right? I'm like, I'm a mid-grade captain. I've got like six or seven years in, uh, and he talked to me like I was a private routinely and I felt it and, and I knew it. And he was just basically, I don't give a crap who you are. There's a job to do and we're all going to do it. And that's the bottom line. You know, He did not care about your background, where you came from, anything else. I actually learned a ton from him, and he was part of the reason why I was able to survive in that environment because he kept pushing. He kept pushing. I, I honestly believe, and I don't know him well enough to know this. I'd love to ask him one day, but I don't know if he saw something in me that said, I can continue to push this guy. Like you said, I can continue to whip this horse and get more out of him because I know it's there. Or he just was a like a heartless bastard and would do it to everybody. Like I couldn't figure out the difference. But nonetheless, no, I, I, think, it I think it
0: was the former. I think it was the former, not the latter, knowing him like I do. He and I became pretty good friends um, over the years that followed afterwards. He became the battalion sergeant major mm-hmm. and then the group sergeant major. And he ended up going out and becoming the special warfare center, which wow. was the training house. He became the special warfare center sergeant major, what we call SWIC. Um, And he owns a business now, I believe, in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, right outside the gates, which is probably where I'm going to end up retiring, is in the Clarksville, Tennessee area. That's where Fifth Group is. I still have a tremendous amount of ties to Fort Bragg and the, you know, uh, JSOC, uh, overall larger special operations Green Beret community, and I love it there. But I think Clarksville, Tennessee is likely going to be home. I'll never forget. Uh, and I'll tell a quick story about Dwayne Cox.
1: And if he ever hears this, uh,
0: he had this smile about him. That You mean the smile where he had Copenhagen rubbed all well, over yeah, his yeah. I mean, he always, had, smile? he
1: always had a huge <laughs> wad of dip. And he always used to keep it in the, in the lower pocket leg, which is why I always put mine there. right? Gigantic. And, yep. And, Gigantic. and so, he, I mean, the guy woke up in the morning with a dip and he went to sleep with a dip and he woke up with a dip. I mean, he was just, he was that Southern kind of guy but he had this smile about him that lets you know that he loved you, but he was completely fucking with you the whole time. Right. Like it was, it was that sort of wry smile. And I'll, I'll never forget. We came back from a firefight um, uh, when we got ambushed on, on Tampa. Uh, And it was, I remember that it was just my guys. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I remember my radio went down and I had to pick up the Iraqi cell phone and call back into the talk and tell him, Hey, we're in contact. I'll call you back because the radio wouldn't work. Uh, And and one of the first people I see when we get back is Dwayne Cox, our major Dwayne Cox. And he's just sitting there with this smile on his face looking at me like, you know, like a proud dad who just watched his son told him he lost his virginity. That's exactly what the look he had on his face was like, you're one of us now, kid, welcome, you know. Um, it, it's, it, it's interesting a, choice of analogy. Well, okay. There, so but, uh... here's a better one. Okay. In Goodfellas, when, when <laughs> Henry Hill gets arrested for the first time and they go, Oh, you broke your cherry, Everybody's happy for him. Cause he got arrested for the first time. Right? Like my rite of passage was finally there and he was so proud, but he was laughing. Like part of him was like, kid, you have no idea what combat really is. What you just saw was like, you know, we don't break a sweat at, but he was, he was still sort of, you know, uh, yeah. He was still sort of proud of me in that way, so it was. Uh, uh, I'll always remember Dwayne Cox. I'll never. His name will always be etched in my brain for the rest of my life. He was a. He was a hell of a soldier,
0: and and your name will always be etched. Before we kind of chronologically move past yeah. that particular tour, that was my first of seven tours, and I get off the plane, and it smells different, right? There's there is a smell to Baghdad, to, to a rock to Baghdad. Yep. I'll and, never forget. and that's not in any way, shape, or form meant to be. But you have trash piles that are burning. You have all of this JP8 diesel fuel, stagnant in the air.
1: water that's been there, full of mud, and yep.
0: piss, and yep. feces, stagnant and- water, etc. And you know, give. It wasn't like that before we invaded. I'll say that. Um, anyway, long story short, you get off and it's a new smell, and you're totally different and you're in a totally different environment ramp goes down this hundred degree blast of hot air is coming up the ramp with this JP8 and burning trash and things like that and i was like no shit i'm 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 in a war zone and it's my first time man i didn't know how secure the, the airfield was all i know is the air force guys were sitting there with you know with their flashlight cones and they're waving you down and they've got earphones on and t-shirts with no body armor. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm taking cues from the people around me. And that's where you came in. I got into a Hilux. We got into a Hilux pickup truck. We got, uh, Hey, our Connexes, our, our containers, they're going to pick up the containers and drop them off the next morning. And that was you. You were like, Hey, don't worry about that. We got that chow halls here. Machine guns are going off. And you could tell, like, I had tensed up, me, me and others. And you're like, hey, don't worry about it, man. We have a range right over there. That Those are our guys who are getting ready to go out on a mission. And so you'll forever be the guy who kind of helped me down the ramp my very first tour. And you don't know what you don't know when you're stepping down the ramp for the first time. So you'll always be that guy. Thanks for, thanks for what you did that first day. You poor bastard. If I had
1: to see this face when I got it someplace nervous, I'd be shaking in my boots that's for oh damn i sure. couldn't see you. it was pitch
0: black <laughs> that's true it was pitch black yeah hey i'm mark follow me yeah. okay well uh, we're following mark
1: so uh no nah, man and it was great like honestly um there are so many guys that I, I just enjoyed genuine conversations with and you and i had had plenty of them at length um one of my favorite ones and, and, and i hope this is you but you you went to griffin school right uh the driving the school driving shooting school yeah that one yeah. Yeah. Griffin group. Griffin group. That's what it was. Um, yeah. and you told me all, oh, I was so intrigued. I wanted to go to this school so much because I, if I remember basically you'd learn to drive like a maniac, which I feel like I'm really good at already. So, you know, like I feel like I would fit in quite well. Um, but I remember we, that was one of our first conversations and, and we, we, uh, you know, I, I just got a feel for kind of like who you were and your mentality and everything else. And I could just always tell you, you had this great calm sense about you that nothing ever really got you at least, on the surface, you know, got you to a place where yeah. I could check where your emotional level was. Like you could tell me from a mile away, you know, if I'm pissed, you know, like if I'm like, you know, ag- agitated, irritated, you know, you were never like that. You're always just nice and calm and steady.
0: Yeah. I, uh, pooped my pants in Griffin group. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I sure did. I sure did. So Griffin Group. <laughs> I can't believe I just told the whole world that There you go. Griffin group is in Melbourne, Florida. Mm-hmm. I'm a new Englander. I love seafood. And the day before we, I, I, I think your producer is covering up our eyes right now. Like I cannot <laughs> believe they're talking about him pooping his pants. So long story short, I go to the seafood buffet. Some of the seafood was not as fresh as they had claimed it was going to be. And I had food poisoning like you read about mm-hmm. and it put me down. And the next day we got hit with tasers. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just, I'll let the, I'll let the listeners figure out the rest of how your bodily functions couldn't hold themselves. And, and I just, I got hit with a taser and I couldn't help it.
1: That is awesome.
0: That is a story of stories right there. And lesson for everybody listening right now, just own it. (laughs) That's what I did. I raised my hand and I was like, I I, I just, I just shit myself. (laughs) Why try to deny it? I just shit myself. I Um, I got hit with a taser and I have food poisoning. And of course we've got all these Rangers and seals and green berets and everybody's laughing. And then they kind of realized like, ah, he's, he's good with it. He just pooped his pants. Hey, Michael, let's, Let's go get does anybody have any other <laughs> pants can can we put them in the back of a pickup truck or something and then it it went from making fun of me to like hey let's let's legitimately help this guy get to the hotel room <laughs> after, we're really after we're done laughing at him after we're done laughing at him let's get him sick. Home. Uh, and and then two days later i got a phone call that uh one of my kid that i knew from him being a, a child he was my old first sergeant's son he had died in afghanistan Uh, I think right around the same time that I'm talking about getting hit by a taser and I had to leave Griffin Group a little bit early and go escort his body back home. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah. Unreal. Um, It's it's the way the war was, man.
1: It was. uh, So let's let's get into that part of it, because, again, you and I had two very different jobs. um, But, you know, you talk about your first experience in combat uh, during
0: that deployment. What was that like for you? Challenging because it was such a non standard deployment. We were, um, we ran a human intelligence network, and I can't get, obviously, can't get too deep into the specifics, but we were part of the Iraqi Special Operations Force, um, the ISOF Brigade. And so we had built this structure Um, and what's called area four, or, you know, on the larger Biap or the Baghdad international airport. And so we had a deep relationship and it was us and 10th group. And we would go back and forth um, between fifth group and 10th group cultivating this group. Uh, We had a battalion of commandos, a battalion of strike force, and we were building a reconnaissance capability. So I was involved with building that reconnaissance capability and it was such a non-standard mission that you really had to learn it on the fly. And it was very challenging family business, right? One of the biggest challenges I had was the fact that my ODA, my operational detachment alpha, they were a essentially a strike or, or a direct action ODA. However, comma, we just had some really talented guys, very, very smart, very in shape, and they, they did what they were told uh, to the best of their ability. So we cultivated this human intelligence network and became very successful in the process. Um, but it was challenging because nobody wanted to do it. We were, we were a strike force mentality type guy. And there we were doing paperwork. Um, another thing that's difficult about the intelligence mission is... You identify a bad guy and you, you instinctively want to go and get him right then and there. And you had to kind of wait and develop a target and second source information, triple source information. Uh, you know, our guys wanted to be out on the streets of Baghdad or out in the streets of Mosul. That's where we wanted to be. And so that was definitely a challenge um, for that particular mission next deployment it was the exact opposite the next deployment it was ramp drops the commander said I'll see you in six months go conduct special operations don't do anything to embarrass your country that no shit that was it that's what we did and uh, so that next deployment that was the quintessential I w- I would do that over and over and over that particular deployment that was a lot of fun um, we were very close that first deployment. And you were there, man. I mean, that was, we were just underneath the shadow of the flagpole and that was always hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a, uh, for you guys, it's different for me. It was a little bit of a comfort's not the right word. Um, it, I just felt safety in numbers, right? It was, it was a bigger group of people. Uh, and I was around more of you guys. Um, you know, had you thrown me with you out there and said, you know, go be part of this, this ODA. I'm sure I could have survived, but I would have been had to take a lot more instruction. <laughs> you know, I would have needed a lot more uh, guidance um, f- or working with the people around me. H- having, you know, all those resources there for me um, allowed me to do what I did really well. And I was in charge of the support battalion and the ISOF brigade. So my whole job was just to get you guys what you needed for everything that you needed to do on a routine basis and train the support battalion of the of the ISOF brigade to be able to do their jobs. So, um, but yeah, that that... I got a sense from a lot of guys they didn't like being so close
0: to the headquarters. Um, That's correct. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's interesting, you know, having joined other organizations, particularly after retirement, um, I was talking to somebody just yesterday about green berets uh, somebody at the museum, the national infantry museum. And he said, what's really the difference between say, you and Standard Infantry out on the the line. And, of course, some of your viewers are going to say, well, that's not true. That's not what, look, I'm speaking in generalities here. I said, whereas a normal, say, kid from the 82nd, and I was one, by the way. I was a young, skinny kid in the 82nd back in the 90s. Uh, We were expected to say, Roger, Sergeant, what is it you want me to do? Whereas in special operations, we don't ask that. We'll call you if we think you need to know something. And those those are diametrically opposed mindsets. Our mindset was our validation, i.e. our selection process works. Our uh, training process works. You're here for a reason. Go out and do that thing that brought you here to begin with, which was the initiative, the drive. We didn't ask permission to do things. We would send up uh, conops uh, or concept of operations, we would send up the conops and say, pending you contacting me to say otherwise this is what i 'm going to do now imagine an e four in the eighty second airborne Division or the tenth mount division telling his brigade commander that 's what he 's going to go do uh, and that was our mentality um, You selected me for a reason I joined this organization for a reason i 'm going I'm going to go do this and I'm not going to ask because we were now here's here's the other side of that. We were mature and intelligent and we big boy rules were. I will I promise you this was my social contract. I will behave in a way that won't embarrass you and will fulfill your guidance. All I need is guidance. I don't need you to tell me how to do something. Tell me what the effect is you want on the battlefield after this is done and then get out of my way. Um, but I think, I think you're
1: right in that sense, like the, the biggest difference between and take this as an objective outsider from, you know, special operations units and regular army units is that, like I said, the autonomy to me is why I fit in because I don't need you to tell me how to do the job. Tell me the results. I'll take care of the activity, manage my results. Don't manage my activity, managing my activity. says, here's what I want. And I want you to do it this way, this way, this way, and this way. Well, go get somebody else to do that. You don't need me here if you've already dictated how it's going to be done. You're you're taking this piece of combat power and making it ineffective.
0: Right. And the other side of that coin is do you want 15,000 19-year-olds from the 10th Mount Division with that mentality? No, of course not. Of course you don't. So there is an appropriate style and outlook depending on what your mission is and where you are in the organization. You do not want 19-year-old... E4s from the 82nd, you know, doing this. However, we were average age 33, 34 years old. Uh, Most of us had bachelor's. Some of us, a fair amount of us had master's degrees. You see what I'm saying? We we were a different population that went through vetting and training to get to that point. Uh, When I was 19 years old, I should not have been doing what I was doing when I was 33 on my first tour in Iraq. What is the combat experience uh, that sticks with you the
1: most, whether it was direct action or something else that you had to do?
0: Owning owning our own um, special operations area, which was another tour. So we essentially owned, in terms of special operations area, the WERV, or the Western Euphrates River Valley. And being the person who was overall in charge of the entire special operations theme and construct and having to um I was really elevated way up and I was a young captain and I was dealing with the regimental commanders the battalion commanders and working by with and through them and it really was an influence operation I was a captain I couldn't walk into you know the second Marine regiment commanders, RCT, the second Marine combat team, regimental combat teams uh, office and tell him, look, this is what you're going to do. Of course not. I was, you know, this little baby skinny little captain who was on this outpost. However, comma, we had to find a way to work by, with, and through each other. And learning that, that influence matters a lot more than authority learning that lesson was that was important and that was my opportunity to really teach coach and mentor um, and influence these marine senior commanders that were around me and kind of really sew myself in um, with them to the point where I was on a first name basis with most of them not in front of their troops of course But I was on a first name basis and I could just pick up the phone and say, hey, man, we had something come up. I need to fly in at three in the morning. And this is why Uh, I knew that my mission had really become successful when they started calling me and saying, I need you to go take this mission because my Marines can't be seen as, say, for example, in one case, it was my Marines cannot be seen as going to get this guy. I need you to be the bad guy. I need you to be the sneaky Pete force that came in from out of nowhere. So I can kind of play that off. Um, That's when I knew like, I'm really doing this. Well, Um, that was, that was the best overall mission that I had. And I really enjoyed it. It's an amazing feeling.
1: Um, And I don't know that there's anything like it when you know that you have the overwhelming support of the people that you work with and your superior leaders, superior officers, Um, that they have the trust and faith in you to be able to just give you something and let you have it. You know, something that is theirs and say, here, take this. I know you got it. We're good. And they put, they put their head on the pillow at night, knowing that whatever they gave you is going to be completed the way they wanted it. That, that, that creates a lot of momentum uh, in a deployment that allows you to continue to operate at a really high level and push farther and harder than you would have before. Because, there's that certain level of trust and, and with that, and I've said this repeatedly like I just don't want to let anybody down. Right? Like that was that was the biggest motivation right. is I never wanted to let anybody in our AO down. Anybody who gave me something, I wasn't going to go back and tell them I didn't get it done.
0: And uh, that was part of the social contract that we referred to earlier yeah. is all that trust and, and capital that you've been, that personal capital that you've built up is gone in a heartbeat the second they walk into your hooch and they see you know, something unethical, or you lie to them, and or you show a pattern of cutting a corner. Um, yeah, that you're, you're automatically trusted, because you went through the validation process of selection and training, you got there for a reason. Uh, however, that social contract is broken the second that you uh, lie, cheat or steal. And it's, it, it it can't be otherwise, it just can't be. Yeah. And
1: and again, that's a that's a heavy weight, man, to carry Um, and and the slightest misunderstanding of it, because in reality, again, um, I think and I'll defer to you this, but just the idea of getting through assessment and selection in the Q course, it's not necessarily about physical might. It's not necessarily about mental acuity. um, It's about your character. And and what are you willing how much of your character are you willing to lay on the line um, when when it matters the most to get you through tough situations? I mean, character and potential physically, you can learn to do anything right. Mentally, you can learn how to be a better navigator at land nav. Physically, you can learn how to walk farther if you need to, but I can't teach you character. Either you have it or you don't. And we don't have the time. And even if you could learn it, we don't have the time to teach it to you. Like that's not a course we're going to, going to ever put together.
0: Yeah. I can't teach you aptitude. Like if, if you're a, and with respect, there's no value judgment in, in the following statement. If you're a, if you're a ninety IQ guy, I, I can't teach you to become a hundred and twenty IQ guy. Um, just like I can't teach you, Mark, to be a seven foot two center. You either are or you are not. And uh just a little short. Character right. And <laughs> the character, so we look at we look at the aptitude and the character. And if you have both of those things in spades, your potential's unlimited.
1: Yeah. Um, was there one deployment for you that was harder than another?
0: The first deployment was actually, in, in retrospect, sorry, I had something in my eye. That deployment, I think, was the most difficult. And the reason why is we talk about aptitude and character. That was the, that was the deployment that was probably safest in terms of my risk, physical sure. risk. But it was the hardest in terms of having to deal with personalities. We were in the flagpole. We were under the flagpole. And so there was that constant struggle of what what we wanted to do and what we were being told to do. And we were within punching distance of both the, the company and the battalion. And that made it very difficult as a special operator. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be there. And it was managing the stressors with the guys, um, they didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be under the flag, the shadow of the flagpole and that made it very difficult for us. So um, on top of, on a personal level, having to learn how to be deployed. I mean, after that first deployment, the second one became easier. The third one became easier than that. The fourth one, etc. cetera. Um, there was another deployment. My fourth deployment was during a time frame when we were the only special operations uh, element in the co- in this particular country, but we were dealing with a lot of conventional folks. And that was difficult as well because we were attempting to teach, coach, and mentor. You know, you, you walk up to an Air Force full colonel as a baby major and say, you know, you don't have tasking authority over me. Whether you're technically right or not, that's a difficult conversation to have. So all of my challenges while being deployed were dealing with personalities and egos, to be honest with you. Yeah, kicking down doors seems to be the easy part, right? That was fun. That, that was. <laughs> and that's the irony. Like you explain that to folks who weren't door kickers necessarily. And, you know, your your pit bulls don't want to be on chains being fed kibble. You know, they mm-hmm. they, they want to you know they want the they want the night sky as their blanket and they want the forest as their pantry and they want they want to be out there getting getting after it that's what they want and uh, that's that's fun that's how the guys are wired is if it's hard and there's a possibility that you can get hurt everybody's going to raise their hand you'd line up 100 green berets and say we have a mission where you might get hurt you're probably going to lose weight you're going to be stressed out and you're going to break stuff and, and, uh, be out on objective all the time, or you can go sit on a fob, but you'll have chow hall and fried cheese sticks every meal. I'm telling you 99 out of hundred are going to say, I want the former.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I'll say this real quick, you know, again, uh, just a that deployment for me shaped the rest of my career, uh, from military standpoint, a big part of my life. Um, I, think I learned more about myself and more about uh, the kind of leader I wanted to be on that deployment um, than any other experience in my lifetime. Um, so, you know, you're a small part of that. Uh, so I certainly thank you for, you know, all of your guidance, conversation, you know, uh, tutelage and, and everything else. Uh, I know we were, you'll tell me we're peers and everything else, but it, I looked up to all you guys, you know, I, I understood my role and uh, I learned the value of it and I was, I learned to be totally content being a supplementary supplementary piece. You know, for the first time in my life, uh, I didn't want to be the center of attention for the first time in my life. I just wanted to be part of the team and uh, be able to help out and and just be a constructive member. Uh, and I got that. And and I learned a, a lot of valuable lessons um, from people like you, uh, people like Steve Clay and uh, Dwayne Cox and everybody else who was around there um, who, who without knowing it was teaching, coaching, and mentoring me for, for a better part of that deployment. Um, there were some long days, uh, there were some very frustrating times. There were some, some sad times, uh, when we lost a couple of guys. Um, but you know, nonetheless, it was, uh, it was an experience that I, I, I value, uh, as one of the most important things in my life.
0: Well, I appreciate all the kind words that you've said, and I'll just say everybody plays a part and, the logistics and intelligence that goes behind special operations—I mean, those are the built, those are the bricks and the mortar of special operations. So, you played a pretty huge role in our success as an ODA and as a, a company. So, I thank you for that.
1: Yeah, well, listen—if I get your bullets, then I'm throwing my job right. <laughs> just, right. Keep, just keep keep putting uh, bullets down range. So, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, that last job you mentioned before um, as the chief of operations. How do you get into that from where you were? And, and being that you just said, you'd rather kick down doors. You'd rather be under the night sky and in in the cloak of a forest. Why do you want to take a job as the chief of operations behind a desk, moving pieces on a chessboard?
0: I mean, there comes a point that you have to grow up and you need to give more than you take. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I had six commands. I was exceptionally fortunate. I was a Lieutenant commander. Um, uh but by that I, I don't mean the Navy rank. I mean when I was a lieutenant, I held command of a of a company. And like I had I had my turn. You know, I I really was probably for my peer group had the most command time out of anybody that I personally knew. Um the chief of operations for USASOC, United States Army Special Operations, they That billet, that job was a post battalion command billet. So I kind of fell into it like this. I went through my major years and I joined the special mission unit and I got promoted to lieutenant colonel while I was deployed. And at the end of the day, at the end of the tour, I guess, you know, the the unit commander approached me and said, hey, man, you, you need to find a job somewhere in USASOC because, There is only one lieutenant colonel per squadron. We can't have multiple lieutenant colonels, you know, just walking around the halls here. Um, That's more important on the officer side and the officer side of career progression. If you are a colonel sitting in a lieutenant colonel billet, or in my case, if you're a lieutenant colonel sitting in a major's billet, you know, you're you're really you're, you're not pulling your weight. And that is noted. That is duly noted when you go up for your next promotion. And so, anyway, long story short, um, I called. I called basically phone calls, emails, etc. Hey, I'm looking for a new job, and uh, I really wanted the challenge. I wanted. I. It was a weak spot of mine. For all the command time I had, that came at a cost, and that cost was I didn't have a lot of staff time. I know a lot of your listeners right now are like, you lucky bastard.
1: Yeah, yeah you're right. No, I was the I same. Was. I avoided a lot of staff time until I became a, a, a high O four, 4 early O 5
0: you're, you're right. But but just like hanging out in the gym, if you skip leg day all the time, you're going to limit your overall progression. And you got you to gotta hit leg day, man. You got to hit what leg day. What am I getting in a squat contest? I'm in my 40s. That, I'm the beach workout guy. Leave me
1: alone. Chest, arms, back. Done.
0: I, Done. Hey, I – Hey, I'm a few months away from fifty, and uh, so, I did squats this morning. Good for you. So, my knees can't take that crap anymore. Okay. Yeah. No, one, I keep trying. No to one's walking like up to you, me though. going, Oh, look at his calves." No, that's never happening. Okay. Yeah. But it, it I was not addressing my weak my weak spots as a one at that point. I guess with you starting to enter the ranks of what they would call a senior officer, mm-hmm. um, I knew I was not going to become a full bird colonel with my resume tons of command time, really cool sexy stuff, Ivy League degree, uh, JSOC experience, you know, who brought the cool kid, right? But I didn't have that I didn't have that get underneath the deck and row hard type job. And so I had to go do that. But I wanted to stay within the community. So chief of operations for USASOC. So we had Rangers 160th, civil affairs, psychological operations and all of the, the special forces is. groups and, and the the uh, support units that went along with that, as well as the special warfare training centers, etc. And so we would we would take those we would take the taskings from say central commands. Say they needed somebody for Afghanistan um, and or uh, Iraq, and we would try to put. Green Berets, Rangers, aircraft, et cetera, against those taskings. So I was that person who looked at, what do I have in the bank account? What is it they want me to pay with this that I have in the bank account? And so I was the hatchet man. I was the one who would say to the CENTCOM, uh, AFRICOM, et cetera, commanders, like, I'm out of Schlitz. I don't have any more. So people often ask me, what is one of the things you're most proud of, of with your 21 years of service? Um two things. One, I spent three years as attack officer at West Point. Forty of my former cadets that I held direct command over became Green Berets. Wow. That is something that I am the fact that these kids, when they were eighteen to twenty three years old, that they looked up to me to the point that they said, I want to be like Mike. Right. I've always wanted to say that. Remember that, <laughs> Michael Jordan? I want to I be do, like yes. Hey, I want to be like Major Denny. I was a major at the time. And so um, years later, it paid off. And I'm walking around the forest and I'm seeing all of these Green Berets who would walk up to me. And some of them, you know, you only spend uh, one semester with and they'd walk up to you and say, hey, do you remember me? I have kids who walk into kids, right? I say kids, they're, they're They're absolutely get to be our age. Everybody's a kid. Yeah. This close to 50. So if you're less than 30 years old, you're a kid to me. Um, And so that's number one. That's the, the thing I'm most proud of is that 40 of my former cadets decided to follow in my footsteps and as not to get too personal as you know, Kathy and I were unable to have children, but to have that as my legacy as a parent of sorts, um, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Uh, the thing that is is right there and it's difficult to say I'm not as proud is we had this thing called our deployment to dwell ratio. Um, and for your listeners, I'll just quickly explain that in 30 seconds or less. Deployment, how much time you were deployed as compared to how much time that you spent at home. It was your deployment to dwell. And the ratio was supposed to be one to two. For every day deployed, you were supposed to have two days dwelling somewhere CONUS or the continental United States. Well, that was not the case. One, that dwell time, that dwell time was not what we later defined as head to pillow. All right. That did not mean you were laying next to your wife at night. That did not mean that you were home in Fort Bragg, Fort Campbell or Fort fill in the blank. That meant that you were just simply not in a combat zone. You could have been out at Jump Master School. You could have been out at a school at Fort Benning. It still didn't mean that you had time at home. So we're able to address that. So that was kind of my big project is we finally got the force. And I don't know the exact specifics today. I mean, I'm a little bit dated. I've been retired for four point something years now. But my last assignment, my last big project, I was able to fix the deployment to dwell to the point that, in particular, Green Berets and civil affairs, I believe, were the ones who were really bad about it. We were able to get them home so they could see birthdays and spend time with graduations, anniversaries, et cetera. Um, To put that into perspective, um, and I'm not – in fact, I won't even name the other branches, but the other branches generally followed a one-to-four (laughs) one to four deployment to dwell. I was struggling to get most Green Berets at a one to one. That's how bad the deployment cycles were. And somebody, and I'm not going to take credit. It was Lieutenant General Tovo who was saying, this is where I stand on this, but I was retiring. I knew I was retiring. So I was able to go down and say, I'm out of Schlitz. I have no more Green Berets to apply to this. And we, we hammered that message home to the point that we finally got the force to a one to two deployment to dwell. So those are the two things that I'm most proud of. Why did you end up retiring? Uh, it was a confluence of events. But at the end of the day, my father was in, my wife is in, and I was in, and I had no idea how the civilian world worked. And I hit 20, and I hit 20 years. I didn't get the next assignment that I wanted to get. And I had a, a brewery that was waiting to open that was essentially waiting for me to come and nurse it back. Well, not nurse it back, but nurse it into health. And uh, that's why I just wanted to see and do something else with my life besides get all of my gas at, at an AFI's PX and my whole life. I've had a military haircut my whole life. I've worn a uniform and or was in a household where a uniform was worn, and I just wanted to see something else. Simple enough. Doesn't have to be
1: complicated, right? Just effective. Uh, So let's get to Chattabrucci. One, how do you decide on the location, right? Because where do you retire out of and how do you end up near the outskirts of Fort
0: Benning, Georgia? Kathy's from here. That's the bottom line. And so uh, when we were home on Christmas, I think it was 2014, we came across this 13,000 square foot building, which is not the building that you see behind me. Uh, this is a 3,000 square foot former body shop. Uh, lesson one for any aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners, location matters <laughs> a lot. It's like buying a house. And it- Right, so I'm a few miles outside the gates of Fort Benning, Georgia, right? And I've got—I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, it says beer. So it says beer, but that is the that is the traditional um, that is the traditional regimental uh, logo. You remember on Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm, for the Rangers, um, mm-hmm. the the diamond uh, for Rangers. We're right outside the gates of Fort Benning. This is the home of the Rangers. We had to move. So about six months into owning my first location in West Point, Georgia. And your question was, why here? West Point, Georgia is where Kathy's from. Um, We purchased the place. The real estate was a great deal. I got a 13,000 square foot building. Uh, We renovated it. We opened a brewery and it was just the most gorgeous. Uh, If you go to the old uh, photos on the Facebook page, it was just the most stunningly beautiful brewery you've ever seen. And it was easy to do because we just stripped things out. We just went bare concrete, bare brick, bare stainless steel. And it was just such that, that clean industrial look. Um, And then six months in, we, we kind of figured out, right. Lesson two of owning a business. If you're going to fail, realize it early, (laughs) realize it early and just clip that vine so you can move on to the healthy ones. Um, And that's what we did. And and we just decided outright, this is not going to make it. There's there's nothing we can do to force the people of of West Point, Georgia, which is a lovely town. I really like it. I was there last night. I I love that little town. Um, But it didn't have the numbers or the demographics to support a craft beer um, brewery. It just didn't. And so we moved to Columbus, and since then, I think it's 814 percent increase in sales. That seems like a good number. You know, if that's the best you can do.
1: <clears throat> so, how'd uh, you come up with the name Chattahoochee? I know there's a Chattahoochee River. Is, is is it that simple? It's that simple, huh?
0: We were a couple hundred yards away from the Chattahoochee River, and we brewed beer. Makes sense. So, Locals must yeah. have loved it. Yeah. You know, that's not the real story of of what I learned opening opening a brewery. What is so there's there there's I learned that alcohol was not my friend oh. and I quit drinking. So uh, I own a brewery and I don't drink. And I'm very vocal about my relationship with alcohol. Uh, if, Mark, if you want to come down and I want you to, by the way, um, I want both of you to come down. I want you to come down. I want you to have a beer because I make damn good beer. (laughs) Uh, We we were, we were voted uh, top 10 brewery in Georgia twice with the top 10 IPA in Georgia twice. Um, But I learned about, it was about 12 and a half months into retirement. I kind of had looked in the mirror and I jokingly say, but I mean, it really gets the point across. I went from Jason Bourne to Jason Boring, and I was compensating for a lot of the, I I lived in a building with thousands of gallons of alcohol, and that didn't work out well for me at all. And I have a lot of alcoholism in my family, and I had abused alcohol for several years leading up to that. that, that it wasn't retirement that did it. It was just there was already a flame burning, and I dumped a tanker on top of it yeah, of gasoline. I mean,
1: in fairness, uh, I would just – let me throw some maybe out of context uh, context on this if this makes sense. And I learned this about the special ops community. Those guys work hard, but they play even harder. Uh, things like alcohol are done in excess in oh, the yeah. special ops community. So it, it lends to that. And when you say that you had experience with alcohol prior to – it wasn't, wasn't retirement – The community and the environment certainly lended to
0: that, I would assume, right? Sure, sure. And I will tell you, as a member of the retired uh, special operations community, you almost wait for your buddy, you know, Mark, the operator from such and such squadron, he retires and you're just waiting for the phone call one day of him to say, oh, yeah, I quit drinking. You know, Um, I know you're kind of making fun of my old looks, but, you know, I'm, you probably have noticed I've dropped a significant amount oh, yeah. of weight yeah from when you noticed, from when you knew me, uh, and i'm funny, I'm kind of in a bulking phase right now with my trainer right now, <laughs> so we're we're not even concerned. I got down to hundred and eighty two pounds I mean I was low single digit body fat percent um, after I quit drinking um, so that was like the first thing that really stuck out to me was I retired. I opened a business and I wouldn't say it's a small business. There's really no such thing as a small brewery. Uh, so that's another lesson that I have written down for anybody who's thinking about getting out and opening a business. I, I, would, I would say crawl, walk, run. I would say open a small business for the first year, year and a half, um, before you decide to dump half a million dollars in all of your your life into a brewery, which is what I did. Now we're successful now, but I would tell you the first year and a half to two years, didn't get paid, you know, sleepless nights. Um, and I assuaged a lot of those concerns with alcohol. And now I I speak publicly. I speak often on podcasts and appearances and whatnot about my relationship with alcohol. Um, I've sold the brewery and, you know, we signed the paperwork on New Year's Eve. And it was just natural at some point that, you know, a recovered, I don't like saying recovering, um, but a recovered alcoholic would at some point get out of the alcohol industry. I'm sure everybody would agree with that. And it was just time for me to move on, you know, and do more reading, do more writing, um, and kind of use this year to reprofessionalize and and move on. I will own another business shortly. There's no question. Um, The freedom and the autonomy can't be replaced. And alcohol, if you ever ask yourself, do I have a problem with alcohol? The answer is yes. Because if you didn't, you would not be asking yourself that question. And you know i'll go as far down on the alcohol story as you want me to go but i'll say this this is another one that is infallible and it's just a logic trap and nobody can get away from it you show me one instance where your wife said honey i wish you would have had more to drink last night just one i i and that's the that's the reaction i get everybody just goes cold Nobody can ever say that their wife ever told them. I had one person one time who tried to kick back by saying, well, you're being a little gender biased there. And I was like, well, yeah, because the vast majority of alcoholics are men. And that's those, those are the numbers. And it's pretty clear. And Facts are facts. And reality at some point has its say. Um, and, and my demographics in the brewery are, are mostly guys from Fort Benning. Uh, so I tend to reach out to those young men and say, show me one instance where your wife had said, if you only had more to drink last night, things would have turned out better. Uh, so I always caution people, you know, make sure that you have a good assessment, good grasp of what your relationship with alcohol is. I did not realize how how much of a governor I had placed on my own engine with alcohol, uh, and caffeine too by the way. Uh I quit caffeine recently and now caffeine will actually upset me quite a bit if I abuse it. Wow. Um yeah. I sleep a lot better and I physically recover a lot quicker uh, now that I've moved on from alcohol. Uh, excuse me. Well, yeah, alcohol, alcohol and also, caffeine. <laughs> also caffeine. So caffeine is such a strong drug. I will do one caffeinated drink a week. Sunday morning at my local favorite cafe. So I go in and I get, you know, the red eye, which is a large coffee with an extra shot of espresso. So when I, I go, I go hard, but boy, I'm telling you it's euphoria. Um, (laughs) It's a big time drug. Ever since I've gone caffeine free, um, I find that I'm, I don't, I'm not lethargic in the afternoons anymore. Uh, I sleep like a teenager. Like I lay down, I'm out and I, I, my, I don't move until I wake up eight hours later and I wake up and I'm right out of bed. Um, so that's another thing that I've really kind of got my control over. Um, but alcohol was the big thing. Quitting alcohol for me was definitely quitting alcohol was probably the most formative and impactful experience of my adult life. Wow. Incredible. Well, congratulations. I think that's
1: uh Certainly, Thanks, a tip man. of the cap. Uh, it's, it's never easy, uh, and the fact that you acknowledge it and recognize it and made the uh, the appropriate changes is is a, is a testament to who you are, man. I mean, you know, um, it it just shows us that uh, you know everything that that was prior to all that that helped mold you, you know, put you in a position where you could make that decision for yourself or your family, and you know, again, nothing but respect and, and you know commend you for for being if you having the guts to do it because it's easy not to, right? It's easy to try to, to rationalize yourself, and a guitar oh, I'll slow down. I'll slow down. I'll slow down, and then, then eventually, it's too late to slow down, or something. God forbid, happens where you don't get the choice to slow down.
0: So yeah, and I saw that with my brother. My brother died. He died actually on his forty eighth birthday. He died February thirteenth of twenty nineteen, and he died of congestive heart failure. And it was he he was. He abused alcohol um, several, I, I don't know how to phrase it, more than me. And he was always drinking hard liquor. I was never a hard liquor guy, um, but I was just consistently throughout the day drinking more and more beers. Um, and boy, did I make, I made some great beers and I miss a couple of them. I, I wish I could, but uh, that old saying in AA where uh, one is too many, tens not enough and so that was like my form of addiction. Once I had that first beer, I could never put it down until basically I, I went to sleep that night and quitting. That was first the weight loss um, you know, the, the physical impact. It took me about a year to physically recover, to drop all that, that bulk and water weight and things like that. It took, took about a year for me to totally recover, but the, the number one impact that quitting alcohol had for me, and I think it goes undiscussed, flies under the radar. My level of emotional control is orders of magnitude better than it was when I was drinking. And so things that were irritants to me before are just water under the bridge now. I don't even think about them. Um, I, I don't get terribly up. I don't get terribly down. I'm, I'm pretty baseline throughout the, the course of of my week. Like I don't, I don't overreact to things anymore. And you had mentioned earlier about how baseline I was. Well, we didn't drink overseas and there sure. it was. I mean, that, that's where my emotional control came from, but with alcohol in my system, that's what I have seen from other alcoholics and my own personal experience is you know your emotional, your ability to control your emotions versus having them control you, is exponentially increased with sobriety. Well said. Um, sad that you're getting rid of it because I wanted you
1: to name a, a hazard ground beer, like a hazard ground IPA. You know, like maybe in the in the deal when you sell it, uh, they they have to keep a hazard ground IPA. That'd be cool.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I can put you in touch with some breweries up in the Atlanta area who are probably better suited, both the, geographically and their ability to produce in mass. Because, with as handsome and popular as you are, I'm sure you're going to be you're going to be uh, <laughs> Dude, in higher demand than I can keep up with. Uh, well, uh, I, I, the
1: delusions of grandeur aside, I appreciate the uh, you know the, the notion that uh, anybody would want to buy anything I'm selling, but that's neither here nor there. So, um, but it would be cool. Like I think our logo on a beer can would look really good, you know. Yeah, it's a nice logo. So we get, get maybe yeah. maybe there's an idea that can be born there somewhere down the road. Yeah. Um, you you have just recently taken on role at the National Infantry Museum uh, Foundation as the director of communications. How does that come about, and why do you take the job?
0: I, I took the job because I believe in the mission, and I knew I was selling the brewery, so I kind of needed a landing pad. If mm. you, you know, I mean, there's the practical reality of guys got to have a job, right? <laughs> Um, And I don't need a job for purposes of of money. Uh, That's not the issue. Um, I needed a job for the dignity that comes along with having a reason to get out of bed and being on schedule. And and I got to I I got to reach that point that everybody hopes they get to where I got to pick and choose and decide this is what I want to go do. And it was the National Infantry Museum. It's four miles down the road from us. I have a great relationship with them through the brewery. And so the brewery hosts a lot of their events. Um, We are corporate sponsors of the National Infantry Foundation. Uh, You can find it, by the way. Uh, I encourage all of your listeners, please go to nationalinfantrymuseum.org. And I'll send you links to this as well in case you do an episode page nationalinfantrymuseum.org. we're a nonprofit, 501 C3. and what we do is our mission is to honor the sacrifice and legacy of the American soldier. And we have we host the Global War on Terror Monument, which is our generation's version of the the Vietnam wall. Like that Vietnam wall is just it's so symbolic of the sacrifice of that particular generation. Well we have, the GWAP Memorial, Global War on Terror. And we have these granite panels and uh, they're etched. And unfortunately, we're we're still etching names into those walls. And so every, you know, every Veterans Day, uh, excuse me, every Memorial Day, we go in and we have a ceremony. So that's just one of the little things that we do. Uh, We've got some pieces of the World Trade Center. That are part of that memorial, as well as some uh, Medal of Honor you, winners. You have to
1: know Michael Rodriguez, then.
0: Michael Rodriguez. I'm sorry, I don't. Global War on Terror.
1: Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. Uh, he is the president. Or is he the like, – let me get his exact title. Hang on. I, I yeah, just he's the joined president emeritus. The foundation. Okay. Well, Michael Rodriguez. I just joined the
0: foundation. I
1: apologize. No. Well, Michael Michael Rodriguez, a former guest here on the Hazard Ground, former Green Beret as well. I think he had 12 deployments. Um, you probably will know him in Green Beret circles one way or another through a degree of separation or not. But he yep. is uh, the, the president emeritus of the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. And That's awesome. for those who don't know, um, they, did, they the vote just went through the Senate um and it was passed so we're gonna get this thing eventually right it's just i think they have to get through the whole site you know exploration part i know there were three different sites that they were looking at and things of that nature but
0: it's coming oh you're talking about uh site in dc yes okay all right um we were we have ours okay this is for yours our memorial Got at it. At the museum grounds. Different, okay. And these are, Got these are eight foot tall granite blocks. That's why you don't ear. know who I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the bottom line is go to nationalinfantrymuseum.org. Um, we, we're reliant upon the generosity of our donors and our sponsors. Please come down to the museum. It's in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, we get about a quarter million visitors a year. And we have 190,000 square feet and believe it or not i think we have single digit percent of all of our artifacts that are belong that that belong to the museum are actually on display at any given time um it's and and we just opened a gallery for the global war on terror and so that's really cool if you walk through trust me it takes you right back to to the streets of baghdad it takes you yeah. back to your firefight it's really really cool part of me doesn't know if i want to do that <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would, I would love to go see it. I mean, honestly, um, you give know, me a call. Come on down. No, definitely. I mean, it's 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 on my bucket list uh, between yours and DC. I'll 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 get to them both at some point in time. Yeah, um,
0: I'll shut up about the museum well, after no, this. I, I, I do want multiple-
1: to go ahead. Go ahead. I, I do want to no, ask I, you I, one I, thing.
0: I, As far as plugging mm-hmm. the museum, um, you know, I am the director of communications. I do want to plug it a little sure. bit. We were voted by CNN Travel as one of the top 12 military museums in the world. And for the second year in a row, we were voted USA Today's best free museum in America. And so my point there being is this is an absolutely world-class facility. And it's the National Infantry Museum. It's not the Columbus. It's not the Fort Benning Infantry Museum. It's the national. So I encourage people, whenever you make a plan, to come down to the southeast United States, please come to the National Infantry Museum. It is a, an experience of a lifetime.
1: Is it hard for you to go walk through all that stuff and see it again?
0: It's not. It's not. I I've made peace with. I've made peace with my seven tours. Um, I've etched the names of individuals that we lost. Um, one was on that ODA that. I was on that first tour with you, yeah. um, Matt Pacino. Matt Pacino lost his life a couple years later in Afghanistan. He was on a four wheeler and got hit by an IED. Um, it's not difficult for me. I've made my peace and have have just accepted. I don't. I would never say moved on. It's always going to be a very strong part of my personality, a very strong part of my personal life history. But I personally don't have a problem with going through. Um, the one time I really got some tears jerked was we have this, we have this walk. As soon as you walk in, there are these massive sloping walls that go like this and you walk in and there's this gigantic CIB and a CIB stands for combat infantry badge. And I, I don't know, maybe it's 20 <clears throat> feet in the air and it's maybe 15 <laughs> feet wide. Uh, and you walk underneath that, and you walk through this thing called the last hundred yards, and it takes you from. Then that's what the infantry, right? They they are that that fighting force that closes with the enemy during the last 100 yards. And so you start at Bunker Hill, right? You start at the beginning of this nation's history that we know today as the United States, and it takes you all the way through those seminal moments in the last hundred yards of every war in American history. And it got to the last, last diorama. So we had gone through Vietnam, Korea, world war one, world war two, civil war, um, revolutionary war all the way back. And it has little dioramas, not little gigantic dioramas of these different stories. And it puts names to the stories. And we have no kidding, we have a disabled Bradley, and there's this projector above you during this is the global war on terror portion of the last hundred yards, and it projects down a map, a map of Iraq. And I just happened to just walk in and I looked down, and my foot was right over where I had been deployed and I lived for like eight months. And I looked down and that, that did, that did bring up some emotions. Um, You have to deal with the fact that as much as you want to think that you're young forever was realizing, wow, my first tour was 16 years ago. That, that brought, that brought up a lot. Like how many of my friends had died and the fact that we had been, the fact that we had been deployed as an army for two consecutive decades, uh, the fact that Afghanistan ended the way it did, um, so there were some there were some emotions there, but honestly, I kind of enjoy walking through the, the sure. GWOT, the global war on terror portion I really do I, it, it i don 't i 'm not haunted by those memories. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with me personally. I can look in the mirror. And I could tell anybody I always did what I thought was the right thing. Um, I knew someday my standard was someday you have to look at your grandkids and say you did the right thing during the war. And I, and I can. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. One
1: final thing. You actually have a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll allow you the forum to expound on it and, and project everybody, point everybody towards where they can they can go check it out.
0: Sure. Um, I have a podcast called Podcast 706, which is a it's a civic engagement podcast. And we talk about um, issues and topics that are relevant to here in the Columbus, Georgia area. And we have some serious issues going on. We have uh, we have some violence like all major cities in America today. We have some pretty significant rates of violence. Um, So I'm very civically engaged. Uh, by the time this podcast is released, uh, that podcast seven zero six will be off hiatus. Um, I took a little bit of a hiatus as I was selling the brewery because my, my work tempo in the brewery went up and I really kind of want to make it a little bit more. I want to go beyond civic engagement and maybe make it overtly political. And I felt while I was in the customer service business, I probably shouldn't do that. Um, Podcast 706, wherever you get podcasts. Um, If you have any more time, uh, one of the things I always like to talk about as well is is small business ownership. Can I take a few minutes to talk about that? Okay. Um, You know, I I often see, first of all, the the rates of entrepreneurship amongst veterans is actually three times what it is amongst the general civilian population. And I, I found that out researching for a... Um, a class I was going to give at one of my old units on this is how you open a business. So I always have pieces of advice that I give people, veterans in particular, who are getting out and, and want to open a business. And the first thing I always say is you are a rookie at being a civilian. You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea how much you don't know. And so I was this Lieutenant Colonel, Who was in charge, not in charge, but responsible for 35,000 people. And I thought that it was going to translate directly over into, I'm going to join the civilian community at a commensurate level. That did not happen. That work experience did not translate. Now, I'm not saying the character and the aptitude and the work ethic didn't translate. That all translated just fine. But somebody, I'll never forget the first time somebody said, hey, do you have a PO for that job? What the hell's a P.O.? You know, it's a it, for the audience. It's a purchase, it's a purchase order. order. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do your P&Ls look like? What the hell's a and l profit and loss statement? And I'm not going to go too terribly into detail, but you are not going to just translate directly over into the civilian community and pick right up where you left off. I mean, a person who's responsible for 35,000 people in the civilian world makes about $400 million a year. And unfortunately, that just didn't happen for me. Um, So what I tell people is the most important piece of advice is get a mentor. Find somebody who was where you were when you left the military and is where where you want to be in the civilian world. I have yet to see anybody worth a damn turn down being a mentor for somebody else. If they say no, trust me, you didn't want them to be a mentor to begin with. That is rule number one, best piece of advice I could give you. Get a mentor. You are a rookie civilian and you probably don't know what it takes to succeed in your chosen field. The second thing I tell people is start small. Don't, I I made a mistake and I would not do it I would not do it all over again the way I I did it uh, five years four years ago. Start small, learn how to be a civilian, have low expectations, and maybe just start up a tiny LLC making cupcakes or what have you. Um, we are, typically speaking, we are very driven as say career military folks. We want to be the best. I got to be the business of the year right now. Uh, most businesses fail. As you know, right, Mark? I mean, you're in the business community. Mm -hmm. Most actually fail within the first three years. Most close up and and move on. Um, And so start slow. Start with a small business. Figure out how to do QuickBooks. Understand what a PO is and a uh, profit and loss statement. Um, Third thing I tell people is find the right CPA. And that can't be that can 't be <laughs> understated, um, you know that goes for go regular with, life too, by the way, when you're doing your taxes yeah, that 's true. <laughs> do you go with the you know three hundred and fifty dollar an hour billable c p a firm? Well, do you need that, or do you go with a person who charges one hundred and fifty bucks a month and all I 'll do all your books and get you set up for taxes and and then next thing you know, October fourteenth the day before your your final corporate taxes are due you, she tells you hey you 've got a bill in such and such amount. Um, So you have to find that right. Find the right CPA. Owning a small business is essentially managing books. That's it. That's what owning a small business is. It's managing all of your profit and your loss statements. Um, That's my personal opinion. And I think I've been I think I've been pretty successful. Uh, Georgia's manufacturer of the year, county small business of the year, top 10 brewery in Georgia twice. I, I mean, I I think it's money where my mouth is. And oh, by the way, uh, within four years of owning my business, I got a pretty damn good cash offer, which I'm selling and moving on. It's just not part of my lifestyle anymore. So find a mentor, uh, start small, figure out how to be a civilian before you invest too much of your money and really, really diligently find the right CPA to fit your needs and um, Rule number one, though, find that mentor. He'll help you out along the way. And that's it. Outstanding pieces of
1: advice, man. I mean, honestly, um, and and the years of experience that you have, and not only as a Green Beret, but all this stuff kind of folds into each other, right? I mean, you know, from your time, even even as a uh, uh, a second lieutenant all the way through, you know, your training to be a Green Beret and then post-life and everything you did, it, it all folds into the ability to create a business from the ground up uh, and be able to sell it at a profit a couple of years later and move on to what you want to do. I mean, it's, uh, it's blazing your own path, right? It's go out there and do special operations or in the civilian world, go out there and do business and then come back to me. Right. I mean, it's, it's that simple. So, uh, your, your, your level of success is, uh, is undoubted at this point, man. I'm proud of you. It's great to see that you're flourishing. It's great to see that the choices you've made in your personal life and your professional life, uh, have all been returned on you the right way, right? Like they, they've all, they've all given back to you. And I think that's, something that's undervalued, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to, to be able to have monetary benefits and to be able to have, you know, health benefits and everything else. But uh, what you put in is what you get out and you're a living example of that because everything that you're getting out of it is is what you put in and then some.
0: Great. And so are you, man. You're an inspiration and a mentor, whether you're, you know, or not, but you are actively mentoring me just by sitting back and watching you and some of the things that you incorporate. So um, that's all reciprocated.
1: Uh, listen, it's been great to catch up with you. It's been absolutely phenomenal. I owe you a visit. I promise I will get down there. Uh, on, on my right. word, uh, I will get down there. Eventually, we'll make the time. Uh, I'll bring the kids or whatever. They can walk around the Infantry Museum. They'll love it. Um, but we, we've we've definitely got to link up. And it's, it's always great just, you know, sitting down and remember some of the stuff that we did together. I'm sure I'll, I'll, in an hour or two after this, I'll remember two or three things that we said and did to each other. And then I'll probably text you and say, hey, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Just because... uh It's fun to go down memory lane with people that you love and respect. It's great to talk to you as always, man. Love you. uh, And and let's catch up soon. But Michael Dennehy, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.